The Camby Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. There are 958 days until the Vancouver Municipal Elections. Welcome to Season 3 of the Camby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. And I'm Tessa Vikander. What a show we have for you today. We begin our election countdown, the slow, inevitable trek to our electoral destinies, and in the meantime, we'll be debating, covering the entire campaign, the goings-on at City Council, and everything municipal here in the Metro Vancouver area. We are very excited to be back for Season 3 as, you know, it's it's been quite a council so far. And I have both plaudits and scorn for basically everyone on it. So today we're going to be talking about, in particular, speaking of plaudits and scorn, uh, the debate over the homelessness emergency council motion, the loss of funding for Vancouver Rape Relief, a possible comeback candidacy for Ken Sim, Melanie Mark uh, meeting with Indigenous youth who occupied her Vancouver office, and some more aspects of the issues springing up from anti-Indigenous racist violence in Vancouver. Finally, turning down to Surrey, we'll have the Surrey police replacing the RCMP, and of course, pigeons. Pigeons are very important. Pigeons are very important. They're the thing that's come closest to taking down a city councillor of all of these things. So, <laughs> Anyway, before we begin, let us remind you to give us your money on Patreon. It is the only thing that keeps this podcast up and running. It allows us to get editors. It allows us to have Tessa with us. And we would like you to visit patreon.com slash report. Yes. Our editors are actually dissolving their company. So if you like editing podcasts and want to make a bit of money let us know yes. but even more importantly give us money because i don't think we're going to find someone who's as good of a deal mm. as we had right. which is not to say we were cheaping out but sure we got a good deal but we need your money to keep making the show possible ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. Yeah. so you should go to patreon.com slash cambi report i didn't even say it the first time patreon.com slash cambi report yeah it is right it is patreon.com slash cambi report 953 days of election coverage coming your way 58 <laughs> yes so go donate nine dollars and 58 cents at <laughs> no this is a bad idea because then i'll just be asking for less and less money i go as <laughs> things go on so <laughs> all right first up vancouver has declared a homelessness emergency what does this mean exactly? So this was a motion put forward by Gene Swanson and Green Pete Fry to declare a homelessness emergency. So the city, different levels of government have done different emergency declarations, the climate emergency, opioid health crisis emergency. And the goal with declaring an emergency, I think, is generally to spur action. And in some cases, it is more effective. And in other cases, it's a bit more ceremonial. Motions from this council tend to lean a bit more towards the ceremonial because councils don't actually have a lot of power. They can direct staff to develop new reports or adjust existing strategies. And part of the motion here did want staff to actually add a target of getting 80% of the people who are living on the streets into affordable homes. 
within three years. It's 2020 hindsight for the visions of the past. This reminds me a lot of the original promise that Mayor Robertson and the Vision team brought forward in 2008 when they were first elected to end street homelessness within three years or five years. And that has gone... Did not work. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't happen. Did not occur. So the motion has some important preambles that talk about the scale of the issue, notably that there were, in 2019, 2,223 people living on the streets in the city of Vancouver. That doesn't count Surrey and Maple Ridge and the rest of the metro. And just that that has a huge toll on people. So responding to this is kind of why Jean Swanson was elected. Like, her target was, I want to help the most hard-off in this city. You know, we've had criticism on this podcast about her on many issues around housing, but this is her game. You know, this is her ballpark in terms of speaking up on these issues. Absolutely. And I mean, the first thing that that came to mind for me when I heard that she'd got this motion passed was like, okay, she got done what she said she was going to do, or like she's now done what she was elected to do by the people who were really like on the gene team, you know? Unfortunately, the motion didn't go through, or if you were on her team, unfortunately, the motion didn't go through exactly as she'd hoped. There were a couple attempts to first rule it entirely out of order, surprisingly from Mayor Kennedy Stewart, who wanted to play the rules game around that. Uh, This entire council has been an exercise in figuring, like watching a bunch of people figure out what the rules of order are and how they can wield them against each other. It has been hilarious. it, It would be hilarious if it wasn't so, like, actually important. And you watch the people who follow it super closely on Twitter, and they'll be talking about well, they're on the amendment to the amendment, and now someone's proposing an amendment, but that's going to get ruled out of order because you can't, you can't amend lose the amendment people. To the amendment. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> and so for everyone trying to keep up, it gets a little complicated. The first thing that got gutted from this, though, was that target of 80%. So I don't know who exactly moved. I don't have in front of me who moved the motion to take that target out. But ultimately, the NPA councillors, Rebecca Bly and Kennedy Stewart, all came together to vote down having specific targets. Now, this is just to remind everyone that the like NPA caucus plus Rebecca Bly is almost a functional majority on council. It is, it is one short of a controlling vote. Yeah, it's five of 11. Yes. And so Kennedy was the swing vote, essentially. Yes. It because came... no one would have expected Rebecca Bly to vote any differently than she did. She has, like, you know, agree or disagree, but her record is and stances is pretty clear on these things. And then the other big part of this motion was to call for the province to move towards vacancy controls. So we'll get into what that is in a second, but when the rental housing task force that the province launched a couple years ago finally came back with its recommendations, it didn't endorse this idea. Vacancy controls, Tessa, you were looking this up. Yeah, so vacancy control is when you attach the rental rate to the actual apartment rather than the people who live there. And that's something that they have in Montreal, and I think that it's been quite effective in the city. So, for example, if I am in Montreal and I'm paying $825 for a three-bedroom apartment, because that was the reality for me seven years ago when I lived in Montreal. Like 825 total for three bedrooms. Okay, so Canadian. Canadian. So when I would have, when me and my roommates would have moved out of that place, the next people to move into the apartment would have also been paying 825, unless there had been substantial renovations to the apartment. In which case, the landlord has to then prove how much money he or she put into the apartment, and then can raise the rent accordingly. It seems like an interesting way to manage housing stock, and I, like. 
Something about it, I have to be perfectly honest, twigs me the wrong way. How so? I think it's because of how housing falls on the continuum between like public good and private asset to me. Is that like in general, it is like it's a public necessity, but it also is something that requires a lot of private capital to build, and there's risk involved in that. And so there should be some acknowledgement of the risk and allowing of people to make investments off of their and, and income off of these investment decisions that they have made. It, yeah, it comes down to property rights and how you view that aspect of it, because it's a limitation on what you can do with something you own. Yes, but like when it comes down to the the question of individual liberty and like individual rights uh li- rights and liberties versus like when balancing the la- landlord the tenant and the prospective tenant my initial bias will be towards the tenant the current tenant the current tenant which is to say i'm in favor of rent control and like rack renting is bad but Once that person has moved out, there's no one's interests that I feel are really worthy of protecting other than, like, a person who is looking, like, a person existing in the market as a... They're more more hypothetical than tangible. Yeah, they don't have tangible interests. They don't have, like, any kind of moral equity in... Don't they have some type of moral equity, if you will? Or, or right to be able to stay in the city and, and stay living in, I guess, like an area or a neighborhood where previously they've been able to afford the rents? Y- yes, and that would be staying in the same apartment. But that's not always practical. Well, then it's not always practical. You don't have an absolute right to it. It's it's a tough balance, and I think this is one of those ones where reasonable people will disagree. One of the other arguments people will make against vacancy control, and it sort of applies to rent control as well, is that it takes away an incentive to create new rental stock. Exactly. Because then you can't make as much profit off it. And, you know, I'm not personally as sympathetic. I think there's a bigger role for governments to build social housing and affordable housing in these situations. But, like, I, I don't think that we have a government with the capacity to do that right now. Hold I think on. That all- Why should that take away incentive to build more rental stock? You build the rental stock, you price it at an appropriate rent that makes it economically viable for you to provide that housing as a business. And then every year the rent goes up a small amount. You don't need to jump the rent up $300 between each new person that moves in. If that's your business model, I don't think that's sustainable. uh, Well, like that that particularly isn't sustainable, but I think that's a little bit strawmanning to the particular business model. Like I, I think that having the ability to like having your rights to sell your commodity at the price of the market is restricted with rent control. And that is a restriction that I'm happy to tolerate because it has like a lot of positive social good. But like how much social good and is, you know, because it is protecting one individual person's or one individual consumer's rights in respect to this transaction protecting them from like having their rents racked is good on the flip side of things why should this prospective person why should a tenant to be be given the same kind of moral equity in terms of like how much the place is going to to cost I, i feel like 
the the landlords, you know, the person who has taken the risk and bought the place in order to make some amount of money has a, a certain amount of there's a stop. I'm willing to infringe upon their rights to an extent and then no more. <laughs> so it's it's This a, is the free market that we have allowed. It's a heated debate, right? And yeah. It, we, should, we should move on. It, well, it, and I was going to say that debate I think played out in the minds of each councillor who was voting on this with the NPA I think more sympathetic to Matthew's arguments and the rest coming down in all different camps. Ultimately, the words vacancy control and the city's support of enacting it survived the attempt to take it out, despite uh, votes by Kennedy Stewart again, Melissa DiGenova and Sarah Kirby Young to remove it. Rebecca Bly and Lisa Dominato and Colleen Hardwick, I believe, all abstained on this vote. I didn't listen to the whole debate. I don't know why they abstained. I don't know if it was a personal conflict of interest, or maybe they just don't know where they come down personally on this question. But that left the majority to support keeping vacancy control in this motion. And so the city has now called on the province, or will be calling on the province to enact some kind of policy like that. Wow. Yeah. And and the motion ultimately passed unanimously with, I think, Melissa DiGenova abstaining, possibly because she was chair. Chair. That makes sense. And so we're in a homelessness emergency officially. Officially. And we want vacancy controls. Officially. 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 All right. Next up, there was a difficult thing that happened this week at, well, I guess it was last week at City Council. So Vancouver Rape Relief, as many of you know, has um, a number of policies that exclude trans people from its services. And about a year ago, City Council voted to put a pause on their funding unless they were to change some of their policies and, and make their space more trans-inclusive. But Vancouver Rape Relief dug its heels in and has maintained quite a kind of an anti-trans uh, set of policies. And, and let's be clear, they fought to the Supreme Court of Canada to keep those policies and uh, won. Previously. Previously. Yes. Yeah, that wasn't yeah. over this. Not but. over this, right. And so finally then now, just this past week, a year later, the city of Vancouver and the councillors voted to keep that, I guess... Non-funding. <laughs> yeah, to, to continue to continue not funding Vancouver Rape Relief. And I believe make it permanent. Right. Like this in general, like getting getting aside to the unpleasantness of the moment... This is a good policy, and the city has done a good thing. I think it's a good thing, yep. yep. And so the difficult thing that happened, and, and strange thing, and a thing that I think a lot of people have been quite upset and, and shocked by, was that at one point, Councillor Hardwick asked Brooklyn Fowler, who was actually on our show a couple weeks ago, about what their sex assigned at birth was. And this is trans-inclusivity, trans-sensitivity 101 is that you do not ask a person about their genitals. You don't, do not ask about the sex that they were assigned at birth because it's totally irrelevant to you talking to them. Just Although as I, it's... I am, I am, like, I am mildly surprised that she even used the phrase sex assigned at birth. Uh, I don't know, I don't know, maybe we can actually cut to that. Why don't we go to the tape? But I'm interested in your uh, comment around the fact that they were uh, trans, uh, fostering trans exclusion. Um, are you, I know you don't have to answer it, but um, you, I'm presuming, forgive me, that you were 
born female. Do you think it's a, there's not a, to answer that question. I'm you don't have basis. to answer that question. Um, but do you think there's a difference in trans exclusion between um, birth male and female in this interpretation? I'm trying to wrap my head around trans exclusion because it seems to me that there's a, a spectrum of, of gender that is involved as opposed to, you know, biology. I just wanted to stop because you did stop. I, I was going to say what the speaker I yourself said that uh, you do not have to answer any questions. Well, and I won't, and I don't feel like you are pressuring me to answer about my own personal experience, but I can speak that. Great. Well, I was wrong, or yes, that's exactly what happened. Uh... <laughs> so Councillor Hardwick asks this question, right? And she, she says to Brooklyn, you know, you don't have to, to answer this question. And Brooklyn then responds right away saying, you're right, I don't have to answer that question and I'm not going to and then later at some point Melissa DeGenova cuts in and says you know Brooklyn like you obviously do not have to answer that question and I I am a little confused as to why Councillor Hardwick felt that that was that part of the question was relevant to her overall attempt to understand trans exclusion um, over at Vancouver Rape Relief. And just to be clear this is not a question that has as far as I know, ever been asked of any speaker who comes up there when there's a, you know, hearing on a house housing development, someone doesn't come up and they go, what's between your legs? Mm. Because that's creepy and weird and mm-hmm. you just don't do it. Yes. So basically, and, and with all credit to Councillor Hardwick, he said, gurge rising in his throat. I feel like this was probably more a you know, like it was less an instance of outright malice and m- more a manifestation of okay boomer bozo ignorance. Like it was something that I, I think a person with their pulse better on the, uh, if their finger better on the pulse of their constituents might have gleaned that this was inappropriate. But Colleen is feeling her way through a dark and murky land of people who don't understand her specific, like, background, and she doesn't understand them. And I'll put it out there, even though I don't necessarily fully agree, but to some extent, council's a democratically elected representative body, and it's not like that view is non-existent in the city. (laughs) Is there a place for regressive social views on our council? Okay, so Hardwick did apologize. Yes. Yeah, and actually, I actually think that, that it's probably pretty representative of her constituency. It's like, I'm not opposed to trans people. I just don't understand them at all. It, it's but to me, it's not about it's not about malice. It's 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 about the fact that like that's a very basic question that I think anyone speaking at city council on these topics should take some time to learn. So I hope I hope Hardwick has has learned a lesson from this, maybe a hard lesson because she's getting raked through the mud in, in a lot of ways. but um. And I think it's instructive to those who aren't on council as well. I think mm-hmm. the dialogue does hopefully help do some good in instructing right. the rest of the but people the re- who read the story. Right. But the reality is, is that Brooklyn is faced with a very uncomfortable, inappropriate question that, that I don't think that they enjoyed, unfortunately. All right. Ken Sims wants to run again for Vancouver mayor. Yeah. I guess he did enjoy the run so much, he wants to try again. So Ken Which Sim... Which was not my impression of it. <laughs> and at 958 days away, that is a marathon. Which is hilarious, because he lost by 957 votes. Oh, I thought it was so close. It was a very close number. How fitting. <laughs> he announced this a few days ago. He's launched a new website. He's got a, he launched a new Twitter handle. 
So he created an entirely new Twitter account. He did not realize, I guess, you can just change your mm, Twitter, your Twitter handle, handle and then keep your followers.、Mm. But it's not like the NPA's base is the, the social,、Adi. yeah, the Twitterati. What's、uh, yeah? I I mean, like he has a chance. Obviously, he he came very close to winning last time, and given how unmayor the mayor is at the moment. There's no reason to say that he wouldn't win.、Uh, there was a, a lot of turnout last time that was split between the two progressive candidates, and I think that, like, with the benefits of incumbency, things are still very much in Kennedy Stewart's favor, depending on how the left breaks down, and break down it will because Gene Swanson for mayor, and everything goes bad. <laughs> yep. But so Mike Howell has a piece in the Vancouver Courier, detailing a bit more. According to him, Ken Sim hasn't decided whether he wants to do an, a renewed push for the NPA mayoralship, or if he wants to work with someone else. Or, reportedly, he may even be starting to found his own party because the thing we always need in Vancouver is more political parties. Because That's what last election taught us, it yeah, was that it's a very effective wrong, approach, very effective, very effective way to get on council, win the mayoralty, and.、Uh, Have Mr. Wall waste a ton of money? <laughs> How is Yes Vancouver doing? Apparently, they're still alive. Yeah, they had a fundraising meeting the other day. I I couldn't go、uh, because I didn't want to, but I <laughs>、uh, I am on their mailing list, and they are you know alive and kicking, and、uh, half their candidates having abandoned them for the <laughs> MPA board.、Uh, it's not half, just just two, but still. The party's the party's out there pushing for density. So yeah, we'll see if Ken Sim returns to the spotlight in a few years. To he was an interesting man. No, he wasn't. <laughs> All right. Well, one thing that's interesting, Tessa. <laughs> he was boring. Like I have to say, he was kind of boring. He's super nice. Yeah. But that was it. Not exciting. Tessa, you have a new piece in the Georgia Strait. Indigenous youth occupy. Office and secure meeting with Advanced Education Minister Melanie Mark. Yeah, so this was about two Fridays ago now, and as part of the Wet'suwet'en solidarity actions that were going on across the country, a group of Two Spirit and queer Indigenous youth gathered at Melanie Mark's office and occupied it for the entire day inside. They had I went over there and they had like tons of food.、Um, they invited me and I did some interviews. And、um, then outside of the office there at Commercial and East First, they were there was about like twenty-five to eighty allies who were supporting them. But inside was only like the queer, trans, indigenous youth, and it, it was very is interesting to watch because by the end of the day, Melanie Mark actually agreed to meet with them,、um, and they had an almost hour and a half long meeting that included ceremony. They presented her with salmon, and Melanie Mark. Was apparently, according to the youth, like she told them that she was advised not to meet with them, but she did it anyway. So, what were the youth hoping to get across to? Yeah, so、minister? they were wanting Melanie Mark to listen to their concerns about what was happening up north with the coastal gas link pipeline, and they provided her with a letter to deliver to John Horgan, basically asking for them to meet for officials to be meeting with the Wet'suwet'en chiefs. And, and to recognize them as a nation, among other things. And、uh, like, apparently, very very recently, like within the past hour and a half, there was news broken that an agreement has been reached to recognize Wet'suwet'en title. 
Yeah, in the last three or four days, I think since Thursday, Scott Fraser, the Provincial Indigenous Relations Minister... And Carolyn Bennett, the Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations. ...the federal counterpart, have been meeting with the hereditary chiefs, a representative of them, and just today, yeah, they've reached an agreement. Supposedly, it doesn't touch on the pipeline itself. even a little bit. Uh, (laughs) But I think probably gives us gives a framework where these questions will be much clearer for yeah. all parties involved. Yeah, and, and like developing a relationship with the people that you need to develop a relationship with is what all these companies sh- sh- who want to do research development projects should have been doing in the first place. And admittedly, I think that Canada and BC kind of steered the the conversation in a bit of the wrong direction with respect to like the people who are required to have been spoken to by Dalgamuk, the Dalgamuk decision. Dalgamuk, I've heard yeah. it pronounced, yeah. So, I, I, progress, I suppose. Uh, yeah, the, is, the agreement still has to go to the Wet'suwet'en people mm-hmm. for their own review. And that'll happen before any of us down in Vancouver get to read the right. final words. But mm-hmm. it's yeah. a promising step. So yeah, it is. I, was I think the protesters did manage to put some significant pressure and it was in a way that kind of gave the government the choice and they seem to have done the right things in the end, even if there was not every step was to everyone's hope. I think I just this don't is... I know if we can say that, they've, like, yeah. that there was an end right no, 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 now no. to yeah. this. It's... Yeah. No, because Fair. the government like still has a lot of interest in seeing the coastal gas link pipeline built. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, both in upholding the rule of law and contract law it is part of that there are a lot of agreements that say that this pipeline has to get built whether or not this is step one in breaking down that structure of agreements is anyone's guess my suspicion is that this pipeline is probably still going to get built and in fact coastal gaslink released a statement this afternoon saying they are planning to continue building so still developing story and i'm sure by the time this is in your ears we'll have much more news yeah but coming back to what's been happening in vancouver regarding this you know these issues there have been several reports of specifically anti-indigenous racist violence in vancouver indigenous folks and anti-hate groups say that there's been a rise in these kind this kind of violence and attacks however vancouver police department's uh, hate crimes unit says it hasn't seen a spike in the past few weeks so I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit baffled by that. But. Hate crimes reporting is really complicated. Right. So, or it's challenging. So what you or I might think, oh, that's obviously a racist hate crime, mm. has to be reported, has to be considered that by the police for it to go on the official database. So right. I think in the last week, Vancouver police had a story out, or people pulled out a story that trans hate crimes had gone up by... 70% or something year over year. Oof. And that was, but in a way that was because the numbers went from 20 to 40 years. You know, it was like uh-huh. a small numbers game where it looks like it's a huge increase, yeah, but it's yeah. and it's still too many, yeah, yeah, obviously. Yeah. And, and I think one of, I mean, I think part of this is that these things go underreported. I, I do hope and I am hopeful that people understand are beginning to understand that reporting these things like does make a difference in government policy. However, at the same time, I 
cannot judge anyone for not reporting something with the police if they're not comfortable doing that or if historically people from their socioeconomic situation or, or kind of racial background have been marginalized or, or treated poorly by police. Uh, the gentlest euphemisms. <laughs> <laughs> treated poorly. Um, okay, so but specifically... Um, sub-zero winner and left to die, you know, on a number of occasions, but... Mm. Uh, yeah, as a journalist, I guess I'm sometimes overly, uh, what's the word? Overly diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> so Angela Stor- Starrett wrote a story for the CBC, which included descriptions of several of the incidents, which have been c- confirmed by police. In one incident, um, an indigenous man was randomly sucker punched while standing on a street corner with his groceries. The man who hit him yelled, don't mess with the effing pipeline, and then fled the scene. In another, a mom who was in her car with her son was the target of racial slurs. And then the aggressor made a motion with his hand, cutting his neck, um, and then continued to smash a plastic wagon over her car for several minutes. So just to give you some ideas of what we're talking about here, like, this is really, really horrendous. It's, I mean, it's not a, obviously random comments walking down the street are awful, but this is like, this is really, really aggressive, really in your face. You cannot walk away from it. No, and I... I mean, like, I, I have seen some reporting indicating the RCMP are, are quite concerned about a potential rise in white vigilante violence against people who are, are participating in the solidarity protests. And can't say, like, I am, I am saddened, but I cannot say I am entirely surprised that this is happening. I mean, this is a country where most media websites have to turn off comments on any story about indigenous issues yep. because it gets too racist too fast. And the reports on... Friday and Saturday night, I believe, that soldiers of Odin folks were circling the legislature. I didn't confirm this with anyone, but a number of people I saw were posting about it on Facebook. And and people who people who I like I trust to not be yeah. just making things up. This feels dangerous. I mean it is. White vigilantes white supremacist vigilantes are, are dangerous. <laughs> well, well, we're on the topic of the police and the RCMP. Let's move to Surrey, where... Oh, my God. Let's not. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those stories where I can never decide if it's good or bad. So the news this week is Wally Opal, who was appointed by the province to kind of review Surrey and Doug McCallum's big plans to throw out the RCMP Wally and bring Opal, in... The, the province's go-to problems guy for there's, both governments. There's six people in politics, and the, <laughs> yeah. they just cycle through them. Yeah, it's just the... You need the Opal committee... Call up... Anne McClellan and Wally Opal, like, quickly, we need the person. (laughs) And so Doug McCallum had come into office pledging to, by 2021, bring in Surrey Police. Surrey's the largest municipality in Canada that still has the RCMP. So there's actually a reasonable argument to have local accountable police rather than a contract with the federal police who who work through the province. However, if you apply that kind of logic, then it's like every time... So now that Surrey has its own police, like, what's the next biggest city that doesn't have its own police force? And is that city just going to use that exact same argument? Like, well, and it seems a little circular. There's some point to, like, the current debate, because the RCMP are in the Wet'suwet'en territory, people think it's a federal responsibility, but they're actually on, the RCMP operate under a provincial contract. Yeah, they're, they're, functioning police are, as, oh, they're functioning as the, like, BCPP. Except... Yeah, the BC used to have its own provincial police, but then decided to switch over to the RCMP contract. And every once in a while, people are like, we should have, like, Ontario has the provincial police. Right, or Quebec. So yeah. Quebec. Because there's some, and this is what comes up in the proposals going forward in Surrey, is the next step now is that they have to establish a police board in Surrey 
Vancouver has a police board to oversee the Vancouver police. It's chaired by the mayor. I believe New West, Delta, Victoria that have their own police forces. And speaking of the next smallest communities, Delta and New West are not big communities, but do have their own police. Yeah, there there is a lot of of good argument for ditching the RCMP and moving towards your own police force. From both a left and a right wing argument, it is better for communities to be policed by their own people. Like it is better when people are able to come up through a city and then get recruited into the police force because they recognize their own city's issues. Uh, If we're going to have police... So the, the the challenge. So does it does it provide more accountability? Yeah. yeah so the general, the goal yes. here of this new police board, it will be ultimately essentially appointed by the province, but the chair will be the mayor of Surrey, Doug McCallum. So that I worry about, but that's how it has to Everything. be. Eventually, eventually there'll be worrisome. someone. Eventually there'll be a different mayor. The city council will be able to elect another member and provide that mem- recommendation to the provincial minister mike farnworth and the other seven positions will be filled pretty much by the province the province if they're smart will listen to the local community if they're not they'll probably just appoint a bunch of ex-cops so coin flip yeah it gives the ability for there to be more municipal accountability so there will be two realistically municipal representatives out of set out of nine that's to like get some criminal defense lawyers on that. Uh, and then that means that there are police board meetings that local journalists can go and sit exactly. on and look at. Yeah. And that's been one thing that like the BC Civil Liberties has really pushed the Vancouver Police Board to report on carding and develop materials there. And they'll be FOIable. So there'll be more local ability to... But isn't the VCRCMP also FOIable? Freedom of information, that's what FOI is, by the way. In theory. theory, yeah, <laughs> but it's kind of it's There's always like opaqueness that I think that a lot of people, even journalists who are I, trained in FOIs, aren't quite sure where to begin. And I think if you look at Robin Doolittle's efforts to cover uh, sexual assault cases in police forces across Canada and the challenges she faced getting data from RCMP, RCMP detachments suggests it's yes. not always the best right. model. I've also faced, though, challenges retrieving yeah. data from Vancouver police. So. Yeah. Um, oh no, that's why way. I'm not like fully endorsing yeah, this, yeah, but yeah. I'm also like, like it, there's a possibility for yeah, more kind of It could be better. And and speaking of which, I would be very curious and looking forward to seeing and hearing about what kind of training these new police officers are receiving. For example, we know that the Vancouver Police Department has been ordered at various times to change its training and include, for example, like more LGBTQ sensitivity, anti-transphobia training. Um, are they going to have indigenous cultural sensitivity training? Like these are things that a new police force can come in and say, hey, we're going to try and do these things better. And without already having a super entrenched culture that they need to change, just like have the culture different from the get go. Yeah. And, and that is going to be the biggest challenge in the next two years is establishing what the culture of the story police is going to be like the culture of the RCMP is set in their training in Regina. Like that that is where I think the stem of everything good and bad about the RCMP comes from. And whether or, or not you agree with the, uh, those training practices or not, I, I think that Surrey has a real opportunity here, which I feel like they're probably going to miss, but to do something really positive for their city, RIP, missed opportunity, 2022. My favorite, like, inconsequential part of this whole announcement is their goal is to roll out the police 
on Surrey Police officially and have the contract take over on April 1st, 2021, <laughs> which just like who schedules any major announcement for April Fool's Day? You're- Brian Mulroney on the creation of Nunavut. <laughs> Wait, actually? Yeah. <laughs> wow. You're just begging for bad headlines. Yes. Especially with McCallum's not perfect track record on smooth rollouts. Nevertheless, Wally Opal has said, you know, this will, this is doable. It will be really hard. There's a lot that once this police board has gets established, which will take the minister actually signing off on, then they have to hire a police chief. Then they have to start negotiating contracts with the RCMP. They have to figure out if they can still use the same buildings. Like, will... I'm con- I'm no, they'll have to buy the building. They'll have to buy the building. I'm really or, concerned about the rush to get this police force out. That I think everyone is, yeah. except McCallum. <laughs> because you don't you build a you build a new police force and you do it carefully. If if you're gonna ask if you ask me, if you want my opinion, you do it carefully and you take your time. I think that's a good rule of thumb for most public policy. I know. For every police force I've built, I've always done it that way. <laughs> oh good, oh good. For your Lego police force or Playmobil police force, how many did you have? Well, usually it was RCMP contracts, but I, I you know, had to <laughs> pay trade your... the, the, the policing for Naileropolis, you know. Okay. okay. <laughs> The Lego, the Lego thing in my basement. Uh, <laughs> we've we've gone off the rails, and we weren't so, even riding the sky train. The police is rushed in Surrey, and when you rush policy, you seem to make mistakes. The other place policy seems to be unrushed, and mistakes were made. Is District of North Vancouver? That's not even. That's not rushed and mistakes were made. It's like. Tell us what are we talking about? Pigeons. <gasps> A smidgen of pigeons, a counselor brought a motion to the district, and there she fought behind the scenes with emails, and turns out she shouldn't, and so they've slapped her hands. Now, finally, this pigeon ban has got council considering again, and now the vote will come quite soon. Will North Van again go... So Justin McElroy has the story as he's had most of the stories in CBC. The city got an independent report, which is, I think, 45 to 50 pages long on this one decision to ban whether or not to ban pigeons. Wait, ban pigeons? You can just ban pigeons. Ban keeping the pigeons in your backyard. As Thank pets. you. Let's yes. be accurate. Okay. Uh, the report has 12 recommendations on everything from more conflict of interest training for counselors, which <laughs> seems good considering well, yeah. it's their job, enhancing conflict. Uh, code of ethics and other suggestions around internal communications and, you know, requesting legal advice if perhaps you aren't sure if you might be in a conflict. As it turns out, you probably are if you're banning pigeons to spite your neighbor. As one North Vancouver councillor seems to have done. Seems to have done. McElroy reports that a majority of councillors on this council now support reconsidering this motion. So it seems likely that they will spend a little bit more time uh, repealing the work that they have done to keep pigeons out of people's backyards. It's a great way to spend public money. Good. It reminds me of how it's now taken, I think, two or three uh, Vancouver City Council meetings to add the S to the LGBTQ2S plus advisory, advisory committee. committee. It, it got way. deferred on a couple of those, oh, but... Good. I mean, not good, but... There was a non-zero mm-hmm. amount of debate spent on that. Well, wow. that's not it's not as inclusive as the uh, one from the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls at 2SLGBTQIA. I believe so. 
yeah, you know, that was interesting because a number of people actually like came to me being like, Tessa, can you explain to us what this acronym? It's not an acronym, no. though. It's a someone, some English teacher out there right now is saying that they know what exact word I'm looking for, but I don't know what it is. Anyway, the short term, short form of this. Oh, initialism, I think. The initialism right. that was used in the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women report. And it was a bit of a challenge. I had to really unpack that. I didn't know right away despite being queer and despite reporting on these topics. So anyway, so pigeons will be permitted in North Van possibly soon as backyard. Oh, good. Birds. Now everyone who's wanted a backyard pigeon pet can go and get one. The guy who had the pigeons looks so nice. He looks like such a nice guy. I, I just <laughs> my, my old therapist had a, a pet pigeon. OK, fun fact. All right. What's our Vancouver at out here? So we're recording on Terminal Ave just beside Main Street Station. And I thought, given the talk of the land and acknowledgements, mm. that it was worth thinking about the actual land we're sitting on and how it actually used to be water. Vancouver False Creek actually went in much further in the past. Fully work. <laughs> yeah, False Creek filled in all the way to essentially Clark Drive before people came or before white people came here and decided that looks like a good place to build some rail yards. So it was filled in? It was literally filled in and the plan was actually to fill all the way into like Kitsilano. Yep. Wow. All the way up to Burr And Street. what they might was have built the an material airport. used? What material did they fill it in with? Uh, do we I know? Think gra- uh, I think it's like gravel and other infill. Like it's... Uh, I'm super curious where it came from. I'm betting... Because often railway. it's like a local... Often it's a local thing where they're like excavating it from one spot nearby and then it just goes into another spot. Yeah, and, and my suspicion is that it was probably the railway line, like the oh, from the. Oh, where they just train it in from yeah. the. Well, no, no, where the tunnels. Where yeah, from the tunnels, and also like you have to do a lot of ground leveling when you're building a railway because trains don't go uphill really. Uh, they can get like two, three percent grade, and that's like a very steep grade for a train, and so the that ground leveling from places like the now beloved Arbutus Greenway is is stuff that would have gone into False Creek. It's worth noting that the original agreement with Canadian Northern Railway to fill this in wanted the city to, quote, employ white labor only. <gasps> Which, given it was 1912 in Vancouver and there were race riots regularly happening, probably shouldn't surprise us too much. What actually is maybe good is that clause was nixed Hey. <laughs> so we wow. didn't go as racist as we could have done. The Vancouver story. <laughs> that infill eventually ended or resulted in the you know the construction of the train station that's right beside us, the big Grand Pacific. Mm. That's not its name. Central no, Central it's, Pacific. It's, it's, uh, the big Central Pacific Station. Yeah, Pacific Pacific, Pacific Central. Terminal. The big Pacific Central Terminus Station. Uh, come into the Cami Report for Vancouver facts. We are the authoritative <laughs> source. And here we are with now a little bit more land. And I believe it was just like the cost to fill in. There's other, we'll go into another time. I remember there's another story about how they wanted to move all the Chinese people. Was that, it was either all the Chinese people or all the black people to like Granville Island. There was some like real racist stuff Whoa. with the rest of this plan. Well, I but mean, we'll save that for another Vancouver audience. And just before we sign off, I would like to do a shout out to Matthew's t-shirt today. It has a woolly mammoth, a unicorn, a dodo on it, a Jesus, just a number of different little figures. He's under the resurrected column. The I rest see. are 
less concerned, threatened, I'm, and I'm just extinct. Oh, oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, this is part of my uh, collection of semi-vintage threadless things that I've just held on to long enough for them to become old. So, uh, I was going to say, so you're not wearing our usual plaid uniform. No. Yeah. Well, I, I've always been a dissenter a little bit on this this podcast, but yes. Threadless.com, you know, feel free to check them out. Or uh, patreon.com slash report. There are 958 days to go, people. This is going to be crazy. From Vancouver, I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Tessa Vikander. I'm Ian Bushfield. Good night.